We do have some serious OGs here. Uh, you know, Yetz, who may go without uh, introduction, but he, he's definitely a serious metaverse uh, leader. So, you know, it's great to have you on here. Uh, you know, Dirk, Dirk is uh, with Upland uh, bringing football into the metaverse, which I think is very exciting. And of course, uh, Ben is an old friend and someone who's been, uh, you know, investing and really reasoning about technology for quite some time. So I, I think uh, add, a, add a great uh, perspective to this. So, you know, our topic today and job is to talk about the future of NFT. You know, I think that what I'd like to touch on is we're, we're going to really start with this transformation of play to earn gaming. And the reason why I'm, I'm kind of going to start there is simply because uh, you know, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that this is the pattern of mass adoption uh, and that we already see 1 million daily active users on Axie Infinity alone and, um, <clears throat> you know, 18 million monthly active users just on that title. So, you know, I think that the spaceship has landed and, you know, I think it's it's getting it's getting really serious uh, up in here. So, you know, what I'd love to do is, uh, you know, just have... A quick introduction, uh, you know, starting with Yat and then Dirk and then Ben, uh, you know, and, and really just uh, maybe you can inject, uh, you know, name and where you're from and then also kind of the thing you're most excited about uh, with respect to the future. So go ahead, Yat. Very, very quickly, my name is Yat Su, Chairman and Co-Founder of Animal for Brands. We've been basically building in the open metaverse and with NFTs probably for about four years almost, um, you know, starting with CryptoKitties. Um, we're very fortunate to be actually the lead investor in Axie Infinity. This was three years ago, which was of course at that time, you know, considered very, uh, very experimental. Um, but you know, we've now done over 100 investments in the space. We also own the Sandbox. Uh, we're behind Rev Racing, and we continue to build out um, the space. And maybe the one thing that I'm super excited about is that, you know, uh, on the, you know, gaming is driving mass blockchain adoption. I think Axie Infinity is kind of like the, that Angry Birds moment of NFT gaming. I would say. But the other thing is interesting to me is, is that it really starts to clarify this idea of data ownership and what actual data property rights really means, which is you know very theoretical three years ago, but today people are beginning to really appreciate. And I think that's the revolution that's going to bring everyone on board when people say, actually, I do need to own my data. I do need to own my digital data. What does it mean? And hopefully that is the beginning of sort of the sort of true ownership parallel that we see with Web3. And I'll leave it at that. No, it's exciting. And uh, Dirk, uh, please go ahead. Yeah, hi everyone. Good evening. Uh, hello from uh, Silicon Valley. I'm actually originally from Germany, but I live here since since many years. And I'm a co-founder of uh, Upland. Upland is a what we call it now today NFT metaverse based on the real world, where people play, earn, and connect. And uh, well, the story is like like a year ago when people were asking because we're always targeting, you know, say, okay, we really want to go mass market. That's the way the way we've built Upland. You know, starting mobile first. But, uh, you know, like a year ago, we were avoiding the word NFT roughly, right? I said, you know what, we cannot use that in marketing language. It's just too technical. Nobody will understand. <laughs> but I think, no, this has changed completely. And now we have to use it. Otherwise, we're <laughs> not getting taken serious. So I'm super excited that the space is really taking off. I mean, we still all, all who are here, right? We still have to do a lot of things, you know, like user experience has to improve, you know, with the energy consumption topic, you know, lots of things where we have to work on. But, you know, I'm very hopeful, you know, that we are solving this and you know i think we're maybe if you look at the whole day maybe at you know maybe at one o'clock in the morning you know getting to to mass adoption at this point great terrific and ben uh, affiliation and the thing you're excited about 
Yeah, absolutely. Hey, everybody. My name is Ben Metcalf. I'm the founder and general partner of Monochrome Capital. Among other things, we invest in Web3. Um, I also saw an opportunity, a gap in the market around um, a data uh, opportunity in the NFT space. I'm being a little cryptic at the moment uh, because we decided to found and kick off a startup in this space, which is now funded, but not launched yet. So sorry, can't give the announcement, watch this space, but very interested in the data and infrastructure side of NFTs. I think what interests me is the ability for every netizen to have a, an official deed of ownership on the, uh, on the, the uh, blockchain, on many blockchains. Um, obviously, play to earn uh, metaverses we're going to talk about here is a great example of that, but just the far-reaching and wide consequences of what that means to everybody, uh, both consumers as well as businesses, is truly staggering. I and mean, I think this is an amazing primitive and um, super excited to be investing, super excited to be in the space and excited to be on this panel with everyone. So thank you again. Great. So uh, what I'd like to do is kind of respond to some of the statements about the excitement, uh, you know, and I think what I'll do is hold forth a little bit and then see, you know, if anyone has reactions, right? Because in a way, I, I'm a disliker of round robin, because you ask the same question, you often get the same answers. So, you know, I'm much more about hold forth and get reactions, right? So I think what Yat said was very astute about the idea of data rights, right? So to me, that's very, very primary, you know, I, interested in, uh, I think Ben framed it as kind of a deed of ownership, right? So I think that's, all of this is super important, because Chris Dixon from A16Z, you know, talks about the ownership uh, you know, effectively as being the central theme of Web3. So, you know, I think that that's, that is a big deal. Uh, I did forget to introduce myself. Uh, I, I'm a general partner with Gumi Crypto Capital, so GCC. Uh, we're an uh, uh, early stage lead investor in the strategic round of uh, OpenSea and also a seed stage investor in Yield Guild or YGG. You know, so we're definitely excited about this space and, you know, we think that there's a huge promise here. From my framing, the thing that I like to think about is is the identification of the sovereignty of users' non-fungible time. And that I think user data is really actually the conversion of their non-fungible time into non-fungible data assets, right? So in a sense, like the assertion of sovereignty is the assertion of the first, the ownership of their time, and then the time gets converted into things like data, or in the case of something like Axie, it gets converted into uh, SLP, or it gets converted into fungible assets, you know, fungible or non-fungible assets, right? So I think that's kind of this seismic event that has occurred is the declaration of the sovereignty of users' time, right? And and so p users who don't have anything have their time. So I think that that's a that's a twist, and I think it's causing this huge inflow. So I think that's that's kind of my lens around the phase change that we've seen and the reaction. So I, I guess anyone who's got sort yeah. of things to pile on. Yeah, please. Yeah, I just, just yeah, to react to that, totally, totally agree with that. And because I think the other thing that's interesting when you think about scarcity and resource is that actually in the past, you know, it was something that you dug up from the ground like oil, right? But actually this particular resource actually comes from our minds. And it is actually one that is, you know, actually really truly, truly scarce because each and every one of us has only a limited time on earth. If you think of it in that context, right? So whatever we create actually has a finite time as a human. And in this case, every individual is rewarded that way. You know, we talk about how the future has to be all creative and then we have to promote creativity in school and divergent thinking, but schools don't do that because we're still ultimately trying to sort of 
fit our, our kids into essentially mass production because we think of the world in sort of resources in that manner. But data paradigms is changing this. And if you think about who owns and controls that data, that's the other thing. It's not us actually, which is ironic. We, we do own our time in the physical world. We get paid a salary for it, or we build a business from that or whatever it is, or we spend time with our family. But in the virtual world, it's owned by Facebook, by the platforms, and they're actually literally stealing our time for themselves and you know, creating a kind of digital colonialism. And you know, that Web3 primitive is changing all of that. And I think actually can completely is, is altering the space, and which is why we think we're, this is so so exciting. Yeah, I'm happy to, to add on here, right? On this aspect, right? So I think you see this triangle also. It's one is time, one is scarcity, but the third one is really the creativity, what, what we can now see and which is going to explore. But let's face it, right? In the real world, you know, we have competition these days with, uh, you know, automation, you know, robots taking over some, unfortunately, lots of jobs and so on. But, you know, people, uh, you know, you know they're, cre you know, they're creative species. And that's exactly, you know, what, uh, you know, where, where the, you know, let's say NFT also in combination with meta metaverse really can really help, you know, to create completely new opportunities. We always say, you know, NFT slash metaverse, there's a new land of opportunities, right? Where we are, where people can expand. And obviously since now they truly own those things is really they can eventually, you know, make money and make a living out of that. And that, that is really the groundbreaking, which goes way beyond gaming, by the way, right? It's we expanding the market by something which has never been seen before. Yeah, and data ownership is basically really where it like is, is actually building your own equity now, right? You know, the equity that comes from it. And I think actually that is the solution that, you know, some people talk about AI automation, as Dirk was saying, you know, basically creating the useless human, as it were, because of the work aspect, because, you know, machines and robots will be doing it much better. But actually with this paradigm, I think we can move from universal basic income to universal basic equity, where the equity is relative to each other. Not everyone has the same output. But it is not one where it's a handout, which is kind of what UBA, UBI kind of feels like, but it's really one that comes from you and exclusively from you and you decide what it is because it's your data, right? So I think, and I think the one thing that has been a problem in the past is data isn't treated as a human right. It's treated as a service. It's treated as an add-on on top of things because you know, we think of the human rights aspect in physical terms. But actually, data being the most valuable resource on earth probably actually ought to be a human right because it comes from us. And that charter doesn't exist. And therefore, I think Web3 is that interesting solution around that. Yeah, Ben, any uh, reactions? Yeah, I mean, with the caveat at the beginning of this, I'm not a huge gamer. I'm super excited that people are interested in this. And I think it's a great ramp on for people to understand this wider space. I think the bit that I come back to with all of this is I completely agree with everyone else on the panel about the opportunities in front of us. What I think is disappointing when I look at previous areas of things like the creator economy on YouTube is you kind of get this, this pyramid of the small group of people that actually create the next sort of group of people that sort of leave comments or do some interaction. And then this thick bottom part of people that just consume, consume. We still live in a very consumption driven economy and a consumption driven world. This opportunity and everything that people are talking about here is an opportunity for people to not just participate by consuming, but participate by creating and indeed participate by owning. And I think the challenge is going to be having been at these days, an older man who's been around on the internet since the early 90s, is the issue of, of education or the issue of learning and whether or not some of these new tools, these new you know, metaverses, 
the idea of owning one's time, the idea of owning assets and games, whether these become interesting ramp-ons for people to understand these concepts and then they can bring them more broadly into the rest of their life and think about where NFTs and other concepts within this paradigm actually applies. So that's the bit that I hope for, is that this becomes a learning opportunity so that that little tiny chunk of people that, that, that do the creation on the kind of Web2 plat platforms like YouTube, that in this era, in this paradigm, we get a much thicker chunk of people really owning and really consuming and properly engaging. So that's the challenge that I'm, I'm, I'm looking yeah. to see. I mean, I, I think to, to one of the challenges that you're describing, obviously, is, you know, reflected in, in kind of foolish behavior. Right. So I think crypto has been a site for foolish behavior, you know, and we see people buying like, you know, uh, so-called shit coins, you know, and, and obviously I think education is a part of that. Right. So in a sense, like the world, this metaverse world could be a very destructive world if, if everyone in it participates in the most foolish and destructive behaviors. So, you know, I, I think I, I definitely recognize what you're saying, uh, you know, and I think, I think that is an important principle. Uh, Dirk, you may have had something yeah. to add. Yeah, I just saying the economics are actually changing. When you think about it, right? When you when you were on YouTube or Facebook and we were a creator, right? You got paid, you know, a fraction, you know, of the times of people when going back to the time, right? That's it was just you know penny. And you of course you have to get a million of viewers or how many, right, in order to make an income on YouTube. But this is changing now. We're adding the creativity part to it, right? And this is where where the economics, you know, become really interesting. So you would take time. And you take creativity. So when I'm now selling, let's say, an NFT, a good, right, which I've created with my time, I can maybe sell something for, let's say, $100 to um, 1,000 people, right? That's actually quite interesting income all of a sudden. I don't need a million anymore. And this will how will this will democratize, you know, much more um, the economics what we are go going to see. And that's, you know, in quotation marks, I hope that, you know, that the traditional, you know, Web 2.0, right, is going to be disrupted by exactly that new uh, paradigm here. Just to add on quickly, just on Ben's point, I think one thing about the exclusivity around that, right? First of all, the platforms did control that exclusivity because they're essentially kings of their particular domain. But the other thing was, of course, that because of the whole open source paradigm, the people who were able to participate in that growth actually were the people who knew how to code. So you ended up creating a new elite, which was the ones who knew engineering and who knew code inadvertently, right? That wasn't the goal, right? Now with non-fungible tokens, what's exciting here your time becomes a parallel, but it's actually much more accessible because you don't need to know how to code. You can be an artist, a photographer, a creator, or whichever it is, right? And it broadens it. And it used to be controlled within the engineering framework for those who knew how to build it. And now, you know, because it's on chain, because the data layer is open, you know, to Dirk's point, everyone can start doing it. I think it'll change, it'll disrupt the space and it'll be broadening that potential to, you know, like I think of it as, as, a, as a mass creative liquidity event, if you will. So I, I'd like to hold forth there on a question that was raised uh, actually by our host, which is this question of what makes an NFT worth a million dollars, you know? And, and so to me, I come from the world of open source software and in open source software, what I see is I see developers competing for what I call immortality slots. Right. And so these slots represent to me almost like platonic ideals. So, for example, if your contribution represents like what is the ideal SQL database? Right. So the answer is probably Postgres. Right. I, you could say MySQL if you want, but like I like Postgres. But my point is, is that 
these are slots that are sort of canonical and they're embraced by the world and the world confers kind of a limited immortality. Now, the idea that this can be reposited as data and given this limited immortality is offered by a system like a GitHub, which is a repository, right? So we've always had this competition in history and culture. So for example, if I said there's an immortality slot for female portrait oil on canvas, a lot of you would say, well, maybe the Mona Lisa is an enduring example of a competitor for this immortality slot of culture, right? But the thing that's happened with NFT is that these slots of culture and history are now available, right? So in a sense, it's just the surfacing of a repository that's actually capable of conferring this limited immortality that was already available to developers. So in a sense, I'm kind of responding to what Yat was pointing out about this kind of now it's available to more people and more creators, you know, and I think that's that's kind of the crux of, of my argument. So, you know, I, I'm happy sure. to get uh, reactions. Yeah, and, and to add on top of that, I think one of the things is about open source, right? Which is probably the one example where the network effect basically beat out everyone else, right? As opposed to what we're seeing with the platforms is that the, de the value derivative was one of time as a hire, for instance. Oh, you're a great engineer because you developed that open source code. Let me hire you for a ton of bucks, right? But actually, if the person who contributed to the code actually received even a sliver of a percentage of the contribution he created, you know, which ended up making companies like, you know, Huawei or Xiaomi or Lenovo or whichever company you want to name in the world. Actually, that might have been a better value of his time and he would spend it differently creating new things as opposed to working for someone in a particular purpose or mission. Right. So basically what it allows for now is a way to participate in the growing network effect. Right. And as that network effect grows, so does your potential in the space. And that's basically what NFTs represent. You know, CryptoPunks or Bored Apes or Sandbox Land, really what you're doing is you're buying a network effect, right? And you're not actually buying necessarily, you know, the visual itself. I think a lot of people say, well, that's just crazy for you. What are you buying a JPEG for? You know, right? But what you're actually buying is community. You're buying the network. You're buying association in the same way that when you buy something physical in the world, you make that determination too. If I decide to buy an Adidas shoe or a Puma shoe, what am I buying? You know, 99% of what I'm buying is virtual in context, right? Is imagination, storytelling, community, network, LeBron James, where is it, whatever that is, right? And everybody, the person who buys it adds to the narrative. If a thousand more people buy it, the person who has it benefits from it. So basically it's a, it's a, it, it actually challenges the whole idea of the business model being traditionally sort of zero sum into one that's kind of community sum, if you will, right? And I think, I think that's also breaking people's thinking around it because they're like, well, you have to compete, but actually the positive competition ends up being one that grows it together, which is different from a model, right? It kills most of the traditional MBA school of thinking. Yeah, happy to get feedback, uh, you know, other other comments. I, I'm happy to respond as well, but it looks like Ben has uh, come off mute. No, no, I, I, um, I start off with two concepts. The first one was that, you know, I have an open source background. I founded an open source business. You can replicate that open source project and run it anywhere, but it's pretty limited if you don't know what you're doing. You run it on a platform like the one that I founded. It suddenly becomes valuable. It's the same code. The difference is that the context, the difference was the experience, the difference was, you know, the way it was set up. But what was interesting about open source conditions at the time is that the bit, and this is getting really kind of out there, the bit is infinitely replicable, right? And that's an amazing concept that, that computing and technology and the internet really was able to take, you know, you know, 
it, its footing from was that you could create a website and it could be downloaded and accessed anywhere and as many people in your you're infinitely replicating bits. The problem is it creates no scarcity. And the problem is, which is the point we're all talking about, is that it makes um, the concept of value, which in societies we very much think about scarcity. Like if if everybody was wearing the very same shoe that you know some basketball player wears, then no one really would really give a shit anymore. So the idea is that I have it and you don't, and there's a scarcity, and that's why the shoes cost whatever. And it's not really the the bill of material; it's it's to create a scarcity. That's it's not a it's to be blunt again. It's not a it's not a paradigm that I'm particularly. I don't wear a lot of like shoes like that but it's what people are into and i and i respect it but that was really hard to replicate onto the internet for that reason the great thing about it was that everyone could get an equal access to the same experience so everyone could have the great high class experience of i don't know facebook or twitter or whatever best of class applications you want so that was the concept of the replica of the infinitely replicable bit what nfts are offering which i think is really interesting and why suddenly something is worth a million dollars is that somebody can actually claim ownership. They can claim that exclusivity. And I think what's really interesting for me with my own personal agenda and interest in this is they can claim utility, right? I don't, again, I'm not representative of mainstream America. I'm not that interested of whether my profile picture is a crypto punk or not. I don't really care e e either way. But if something is gonna give me access, if something is gonna provide me with utility, whether it's part of a club that gives me benefits or it's part of access to some service or something like that, and that's being uh, uh, run in, in a, on a decentralized system, that's very different than the infinitely replicable bit, which is what we sort of had in yeah, the first and, 20 years of the internet. And that's what I think is really exciting. Well, and I'd like to respond a little bit to your idea of utility, which is I, I think of it more like rights. Right, which is what rights are conferred, right? And what is the engine that kind of handles the management of your rights? And and to me, like a lot of the rights right now are adjudicated by game engines, right? So the game engine tells you what your rights are. It's like, oh, you swing the sword, you get 10 damage. Like, okay, those are your rights. And game engine takes care of that for you. Um, I, I What I wanted to respond to with uh, what Yat mentioned is he mentioned community, right? So uh, the ancient Greeks had a word, kleos, and that was what, the character Achilles was seeking. And you could translate that as fame. But what it really is, is it's a limited immortality. And what it is, is it's what people say about you when you're not there. And I think what the Greeks understood is that the greatest time period when you're not there is after you're dead, right? So in a sense, like that was what Achilles was seeking. And I Who's think guessing? the idea- Absolutely, right? And so in a sense, the community value. So this idea of what does makes an NFT worth a million dollars is it's kind of, uh, contribution to culture, history, the creation of an immortality slot, right? And this concept of Kleos, right? This idea that like there's a network effect around this object and that people are admiring it. So I, Dirk came off of mute. So. Not Miko, yeah, Miko, I like to challenge that a little bit, right? Because earlier Great. we said, hey, you know, there's, you know, we had this little, you know, little top of the iceberg, right? On YouTube or wherever, right? Where a small number of creators sure. have made all the money. All I hear right now is, oh, this is NFT, this is worth a million dollars, $50 million, and so on. I mean, that's the narrative in all the media, 
right? And I think that's not I think that's not what is so exciting about it. It's really more about the small amounts, you know, that everyone can get access to it. And then it comes back to the equations, all what, what NFTs are really are. They are systems of beliefs. You know, I join, you know, it can be very tribal. We all know that, right? Currently, especially right in the NFT space and the blockchain space and so on. But once we overcome that and once we democratize it, you know, that everyone can really, you know, inter-exchange it. And once we go away from the narrative that only the top should earn and you know, hey, this is one million dollar worth and so on. So on, I think then we really achieved something. I think we're quite a little bit further away from that. Um, but otherwise we just run the same, you know, the same path which we've run always before. So I'm a little concerned about that if we continue with the narrative, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I appreciate that, and I like I like to get a little combative. So yeah, yeah, maybe has a reaction. Yeah, no, great. So first of all, totally agree with everything here. I think one of the thing um, about about the community effect on this one is that when you think of NFTs, they don't have to be the manufactured scarcity only, which is what happens a lot with art and photos. Oh, I'm only issuing five or ten. It's actually you could issue millions of the same object, but then what it, it depends on what people do to it, right? It's it's like our relationship with wedding rings. You know, wedding rings as a community really only have a special value to just maybe 10 of us, 20 of us, or a family. And maybe if it's a very famous person, it might have a different kind of immortality, right? I love the concept of Cleos and immortality as a concept here. But I think I think that is um, sort of, you know, maybe as a community that is small enough, but has that power sort of uh, in, in and of itself, right? The other thing that's really precious is that you can add communities on top because of composability, right? Meaning that it may have this utility today, Right? I mean, it's like Pokemon cards in the physical world. It was meant for a game. Who knew it was going to turn into valuable sort of collectibles right? and, and go crazy like this? Or trading cards with you know, Major League Baseball. They were add-ons for chewing gum right? before they actually ended up becoming valuable, tradable, collectibles thereafter and used in different cultural ways. Right? So I think what's so powerful about NFTs is that you know, they stole all these moments of you know, immortal culture, if you will. And then in this case with NFTs, you can take them with you and transfer them and move them around and look, look at loot, right? The composability on top of that is almost ridiculous, you would say. A bunch of words, what the hell, right? But, you know, it captures the imagination because that's after all what, you know, we have as humans and puts incredible things on top on this paradigm where everyone is building on top of, you know, a bunch of words, right? Which, which now we can own a piece of that network effect as it grows. And it's, it's um, I, I just get really excited. <laughs> No, and, uh, you know, I, I have to apologize, right, because, you know, we are really creeping up to the top of the hour, which is a shame because, you know, I think we do have a wealth of knowledge here on this panel. And, you know, and one of the things I did want to respond to is that when we think about loot and the distribution of loot, one of the things that I can't help thinking about is Yield Guild, the YGG, which is a guild that's whose sole function is to distribute the proceeds of collective action. And the reason why I wanted to mention them is that they're really evidence of something new that's forming because people look at this as the first metaverse labor union and as a labor union people look at them and say well they're just a bunch of socialists right but at the same time they're operating probably one of the world's largest metaverse hedge funds right so they're running around buying up in-game items and nfts and land and everything else so you look at them again and you're like wow they're just a bunch of capitalists right but the thing that i think is kind of really interesting is that they're not random because the things they're buying are the things that the players are using to generate yield, right? So the socialist branch and the capitalist branch are operating together in this new synergy, right? So, you know, I just wanted to kind of like 
claim that something new is happening here. So like, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, the old models are, are being challenged, you know, and I, I just wanted to, to, to just toss it out there. I know that unfortunately we're short on time. So, you know, I'll get quick reactions and then uh, well, we'll call very it quickly, a if we can. Maybe on this one. Yeah. Look, it's capitalism is changing. I think the old form of capitalism was sort of the basis of the industrial sort of revolution and that age is all, you know, um, sort of subject to change. You know, when you think about what the internet did, you could argue that the internet was probably an ultra socialist view of knowledge and information. And it disrupted perhaps that type of information that was knowledge, that was money, right? The sort of the information arbitrage that existed, you know, like decades before in, in the internet came about. And that's changing. But capitalism was due for a change anyway, right? And I think this idea that we talk about, you know, it's not a, it's either capitalist or socialist, right? It's a new system. Yield Guild sort of demonstrates right. that in a, in a great, in a, in, a, in a great way where, you know, you can be sort of social thinking in the way that you do certain things and more inclusive, but yet have a very capitalist viewpoint. The token economy and the token incentives is perhaps as ultra capitalist as it gets, and, and yet it works from an incentive building standpoint. So I think these are new paradigms. And frankly, in the future, when we go even deeper, you talk, look at DAOs, for instance, I actually think DAOs you know, will have more power or maybe equal power to the way governments are run. In fact, I think DAOs are going to invade governments, are going to invade politics. Right. If you think about what Axie's doing, yeah, they're they're the definitely a gov a governance function. I think Dirk yeah. came off of mute. Oh, let yeah, him just, kind of I maybe conclude, then kind of the final my closing word words too. is actually using yeah. uh, words of a famous uh, German philosopher. You know, the three phases. You know, of truth. The first phase is you know you come up with something and it's really cool. Everybody laughs at you. The second phase is, you know, it's opposed. They said, no, 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 we never did that here. So why you know, we won't do it. And the third, third phase is then, you know, it's self-evident. Every said, you know, I told you, so I knew that it was going to happen. That's what we're going to see with the with the NFTs as well. Wonderful. And Ben, closing note. Just, just really quickly, I think we're in a really interesting experimental phase. We can get some stuff wrong. We can get far out into the edges and come back the way that you know, this is a so people calling this socialism or post-capitalism, whatever. I think like everything and what we've seen in the internet before, it'll contract somewhere in the middle. We've kind of here in this kind of sort of middle ground, we explore the edges. And then over time, we kind of end up in this kind of middle ground and that's probably where it will go. I implore people to explore those edges. We should all be doing that. Where we'll end up, I don't know, but um, you know, let's have fun exploring. Wonderful. Well, it looks like we've got another exciting panel coming up. So I'd love to hand back to the CrowdCreate team. So th thank you so much to my panelists. Apologies for not having enough time for all of you, but I, you know, definitely uh, super exciting to talk to you all.